Last time we were looking at the Gospels, uh, we read the story from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, about the healing of the man in the pool, the pool called Bethesda. And the man uh, was healed on the Sabbath. And we saw that the main point of that story was, uh, you might say, the, the obtuseness of the man being healed and Jesus' reaction to that obtuseness which was to um, not mind but to give him anyway all that he had even though uh, the man's inability to grasp the full implications of the situation um, made it hard on him Immediately following that story is a long discourse, which I'm now going to read. It connects with that story, and it's quite a remarkable discourse, perhaps one of the most remarkable in the Gospels, uh, in that it, in which Jesus reveals himself more fully, I think, than in almost any other section. There is a parallel section in this Gospel, in the ninth chapter, the story of the healing of the man born blind, which is similar but has a lot of differences too which we will go into when we get there so after the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole and as we pointed out last time throughout this gospel the Jews per se refers to the Jewish religious establishment in particular um, all the people involved including Jesus are Jews and the term is used only means the official Jews, you might say. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. <coughs> verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself and have given him authority to execute judgment also, 
because he is the Son of Man. And this is approximately the first half of the discourse, and I want to stop here and comment before continuing. If we have time, we may continue today, or it may be next week with the second half. But it breaks quite naturally at this point. Uh, the first thing to note is that um, Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath day was a source of great annoyance to the Jewish religious establishment. It had overtones of blasphemy even before Jesus made his statement about the Father and himself. And Jesus' point of view on this is that, as expressed throughout the Gospels, not only in John but in the others too, was that he had, he had access, he understood why the Sabbath was there and therefore he had the right to do with it as he wanted. And truly speaking, anyone who was awake had the same right. There, there was perhaps a purpose to the observance of the Sabbath, but if there was a sufficient reason, the famous saying in the Gospel of Mark, um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, um, is the criterion here. And this is just an instance of that. At another place he points out that um, to heal on the Sabbath is a very benign thing, that it's not a bad thing, and that uh, it, in a sense, sanctifies it by making someone whole who is broken. But when Jesus answers and says, My Father works up till now, and I work, that's what that means, hitherto means up until now, my Father has not stopped working. It's a little sarcastic almost, because how could God stop working. Of course, in the book of Genesis, um, it says that God rested on the Sabbath day. What that means is, uh, you know, a good question, but it was very obvious to um, even the rabbis at this time, the people who cared most about the Sabbath, that, it, that there was certainly a sense in which God never stopped working and could not, or the whole world would fall apart. That was very clear to them, and Jesus is drawing on that understanding when he says this. So up till now my father has kept on working, so I work. And this, of course, put him, it made him equal to God in the sense that the God, you might say, was the only person who was allowed to break the Sabbath and that um, he was an exception to the rule and that Jesus, by invoking him, was saying that he was like him, also an exception to the rule. At least this is the way they understood it. So, uh, there, it's not stated what they said at this point, but it is indicated that they were got more upset. And Jesus then comes forth with one of the most powerful explanations of the way in which God relates to masters, and beautiful explanations, I would say, in the beginning of this discourse. Verily, verily, and verily is a means truly, of course. In the Greek, which is what this gospel is written in, the word used is amen, which doesn't isn't really translated as translatable. It has connotations of, of truth, but it's an emphatic word which is added for emphasis. And the, to double it means that it's this is a very important statement that I am now going to make. There is a verse of Guru Gobind Singh's, "Hear ye all, I tell you the truth. Only those who love can meet God." which Master Kripal Singh sometimes translated that way 
and sometimes as verily verily I say unto thee only those who love can reach God but that statement hear ye all I am telling you the truth with great emphasis is a rough equivalent to this double amen 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 I say to you the son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do for what things soever he doeth these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Uh, it has been pointed out that this is as overtones of a parable, that the, uh, the image here is almost that of a father who knows a trade, teaching his son the trade. Such as, for example, Jesus' father, earthly father, who is a carpenter, would have presumably taught him the carpenter's trade when he was a boy, and that the the uh, image presented that of the father loving the son out of his love, showing him all of the things that he does, and then giving him the ability to do them also, is present as intimate an explanation of the way in which God relates to <coughs> to his beloved sons as we have in any scripture anywhere. And then he goes on, what are the things that God wants the son to do that he is also able to do? There are two of them. For as the father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, quickeneth, of course, is Elizabethan English, for give them life. As the father raiseth up the dead and give them life, even so the son gives life to whom he will. It's the first job of the Son, in other words, is to give life. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And that is the second, <coughs> to judge. Now, this may seem strange to us, but the word judgment in the Bible does not necessarily have negative connotations. It is often used, especially in the Old Testament, in the sense of... of um, of restore, of restoring, of restoration, that when God judges, um, then things will be put right. They'll be made the way they ought to be. So there is a sense of that, but I think that the main meaning here is when a person commits themselves to the living master, then he takes over the decision-making as regards to that person's karma. This is, strictly speaking, um, ultimately in the hands of God, of course, but in the, in the ordinary course of events with most people, it's not handled by God directly, but by Kao. When the master takes over the account of anyone's karma uh, and decides how to deal with it, in other words, he is judging them, uh, then it is like God is coming into his own, that which should be, <coughs> ideally should have been done by God from the beginning is restored and is being handled by the one to whom God has given the direct commission. So these are the two things. That God has the power to give life to the dead, so he gives it to the Son, and furthermore, it is God's right to judge, to decide the fate of people, how to deal with them, but he has also given that to the Son. And these are, in fact, the two main works of the Son, that is, of the living master of God working in the pole of man, in the human body. Of course, raising up the dead and giving it life, later on in this discourse there is a lot about that. Um, it is often understood, 
both in terms of Jewish and Christian traditional theology as the resurrection of the dead at the end of the world. And I'm not saying that this discourse as it stands does not include any references to that. But there is a far more important meaning, which is um, the one that Jesus is primarily referring to, and that is, of course, making people reborn, grafting life into them as is done at the time of initiation, and uh, taking those of us who are dead, literally lost, cut off, and restoring us uh, into contact with that which we lost, that is, the life that was inherent in our own soul. And this is, of course, the primary work of the Master. And this is there is no question that this is what Jesus is referring to. For one thing, the healing of the man in the story that just took place was a, um, a parable of that, as, as I pointed out when we studied that story. And uh, this discourse follows from that and is in many ways a commentary, a commentary on that story. <coughs> Further, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. And here we get into some real depth of, of what might be called theology. But the point is that if we really love God, anyone who is really in search of God, who really loves God from his heart, who has a sense of that, um, will recognize the living master in some degree or other. He will not at least um, turn against him. And this has been a, a rule down through history. Elsewhere, Jesus refers to it as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that men are unable to recognize the power of God working in the, uh, in the sun. And, of course, we know History tells us, and the end of this book itself tells us, um, that this is true in Jesus' case also, that he was not honored by men, uh, not during his lifetime anyway, when there was a chance that it would do somebody some good. And <coughs> consequently, the people who put him to death and who refused to pay attention to him were proclaiming that they were not honoring the Father either. Now, this is not should not be understood, though, as a theological thing, in the sense that you've got to believe in such and such, or so and so, you're going to hell. That's the way that these things are often understood, but that's not the way they work. Rather, it means this, that if we are cut off from God, which all of us are, all people are, uh, if we are cut off from God and we have a yearning for him, then that yearning will bring us to the place where he is manifested. And if then we are brought face to face with that place where he is manifested, and for one reason or another, perhaps the fact that our desire to remain cut off is stronger than our desire to find him, or for whatever reason, we refuse to honor him at that point. <coughs> we cannot, for one reason or another, recognize him. And it means that we are rejecting not only him, but the one who sent him, as Jesus says in the next verse. So that, therefore, the condemnation is that we remain cut off. In an earlier discourse, he says that the condemnation is that um, we remain in darkness. And that's about the fact of it. So it's important, if in order for love of God to mean anything, to have a, 
a real meaning and to bear forth fruit that human beings must love the one in whom God is manifested. And of course, it does not imply, as Salen Singh has written very eloquently, it does not imply any limitation of opportunity because these things are taken care of. If someone has that desire, then he is brought into a place where he can come in contact with that person who is manifesting that. And uh, many times in history there have been more than one master on earth at the same time, and uh, it's almost, I think, according to Swamiji, the Satguru is always incarnate upon the earth, so that neither place nor time is a problem. Jesus continues, again with a double Amen, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Okay, very rich verse with lots of implications and different layers of meaning. Two, he that heareth my word obviously has a double meaning. First of all, it's, it's his words that he's saying, especially those words that he's saying right now, which are of the utmost importance. But we know also that it refers to the word, that who heareth the word, the Logos, which the opening chapter of this gospel explains so thoroughly, that it is in that hearing of that word or Logos or Nam or Shabbat or sound current that is the agent that brings the life, that makes the life possible. So that he is also referring to that, that he has to hear the word and believe on him that sent me, which is not, again, a theological point, but rather a simple psychological observation that if we receive the word, we come in contact with the living master, and we even get something from him, but we refuse to believe that he is sent from God for one reason or another, um, we are not able to make use of what we are given. As Blake put it, uh, if the sun and moon should doubt, they'd immediately go out, and something like that. If we, <coughs> if we, that is why the order is here. We have to hear the word, but we also have to recognize the source of it. In other words, that he is sent from God. And notice that the belief is not a question of believing in a particular personality um, and saying things about him and convincing others about him. No, it's a question of recognizing where what he is giving comes from. And the belief is really in God, but the belief is in God as the sender. God as the active doer behind this particular manifestation of God's love that we see in front of us in a human form. So this is a very important verse under two things, the hearing my word, which has the double meaning of grasping the teachings and also coming into actual contact with the inner word and the recognition of God as the sender uh, are the prerequisites for having everlasting life and not coming into condemnation. <coughs> Again, in John's Gospel, uh, everlasting life is the term used which in the, in the Indian scriptures is referred to as mukta or liberation. The term liberation is very similar in etymology to, to everlasting life and both of them don't refer to going to heaven as opposed to going to hell, which is again the traditional theological Christian interpretation. 
but they refer to leaving behind the arena of death, that is to say, the state of affairs or the state of living in which we die over and over again. And so if we, if we hear the word and we recognize its source so that we can follow it to where it comes from with the whole heart, then <coughs> we have everlasting life. We are liberated, in other words. We escape from that, that condition in which we are subject to death over and over again. And we pass, very literally, we pass from death unto life. Note that there is nothing in this verse that refers specifically to heaven or hell unless we are reading it back into it from the, with that understanding. The term, it very specifically refers to death and life, death and everlasting life. And then another magnificent verse, Verily, verily, I say unto you, again the double amen, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Uh, again, this verse is absolutely pregnant with meaning. It, ostensibly, and it is taken this way by most Christian denominations, it refers to the resurrection at the end of the world. But you will notice that it cannot mean that because of the fact that the hour is not only coming, but it now is. In other words, it is the present moment when the people who are standing in front of Jesus are the people whom he is addressing. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And who are the dead? Dead are not, what is meant here is not those people who have physically died, but those people who are subject to death, as we said before, and who are cut off so that they do not have access to the source of life within themselves. And if those people hear the voice of the Son of God, and here again we have a double meaning, Outwardly, it means um, the words that the Master is saying. And they, it is necessary to hear those and to recognize them, understand their source and their importance <coughs> in order to act on them. But furthermore, the voice of the Son of God here, um, Jesus very seldom referred to himself as the Son of God, by the way. That is a term that was referred to him by others. He almost invariably refers to himself as the Son of Man even when he is speaking very um, strongly, as in, in two verses he is, about the Son of Man's authority. And the Son of God here almost certainly means the sound current itself, the, the word, as in the first chapter of John, when it refers to the only begotten Son. The voice of the Son of God, that is the ultimate word of which the human sons are manifestations, that voice is, of course, the sound current, and they that hear it shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And in these words, uh, in these verses, we do have a very concise and clear explanation of the basic truth of St. Mat, which is also the basic truth of all the higher teachings in the world, that God has life. He is, Master Kripal somewhere says, he is overflowing with life. So the Son has that also because it is given to him by God. It is not something that any human being can lay claim to or has the right to, but those human beings who make themselves able to receive it do receive it, and then they can give it to others.
And again, these are the two, this is the end of the first half of the discourse, and Jesus is summing up here um, the two works, the two principal works that um, he mentioned earlier, both of giving life and of judgment. So he, he is commenting on both of them. As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And in the Greek, by the way, the word the is not there. There is no article. <coughs> because he is Son of Man. And some people have thought that this changes the meaning of the verse a lot, but most people, most scholars who have gone into it, don't think that. Um, they think that it's a way of emphasizing the importance of the title at this point. Um, both the giving of life, the ability to give life, and the authority to execute judgment are <coughs> the Master's prerogative because he has been given them by God. And it's very important that we, in this in this discourse, in the Gospels generally, especially the Gospel of John, and in the Santanat literature also, especially some hymns of Kabir and Sajubai and discourses on those hymns that the Masters have given, different Masters have given, the the position of the person of the Master is elevated very high. And uh, it almost, the paradox is given in Kabir's hymn, the Master is greater than God. And the Masters have often explained that this is not, does not mean that from the ultimate or God's point of view that the Master is greater than God, but from the point of view of the human being who is looking, the Master is greater than God because he is the one that can give the human being what he wants. This is a well-known paradox and need not be um, commented on at great length. Here, I think most of you are familiar with it. Sanchi's favorite parable of that is that if a man is lost some gold, somebody helps him to find it, who will he be grateful to? To the person who helps him to find it or to the gold itself? If we are searching for God and uh, someone helps us to find him, then the one who helps us to find him, as far as we are concerned, is the one who has the authority and the power, because he has been the doer. So that's from our level. Ultimately, of course, it's God who is the doer. There is no difference. And the Master, as Jesus has really painstakingly explained here, the Master has his authority and his power, his ability to connect us, his ability to give us life. These are given him out of the overflowing abundance of those attributes as possessed by the Father. And uh, we honor the Son because he has been given that by the Father. It's a very subtle and tremendously beautiful relationship. At the end of the verse that we just read, has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. is a marvelously, I think, evocative verse. <coughs> It relates back to the the parables that both Master Kapal and Sanchi have said many times, Sawansing also, and other masters too, that man is the teacher of man. You know, it is not sufficient for most human beings to um, say that God will teach them. Man is the teacher of man, just as um, Master Kapal used to say, crows caw 
and gather about them all crows and so forth in the same way that the human being who has been given God's authority and his life and his love and his ability to judge is there um, that human being because he is a human being has been given that authority <coughs> rather than say someone existing on a higher plane who is not like us it's important that the Son of Man is given that authority because of his humanity. In other words, here the Master is seen, looking from above, the Master is seen not as one with God, but as one with the human race, which is also true. It's just as true as the other. Both are equally true. And it is because the Master is, after all, Kripal Singh used to begin almost every one of his discourses, or a great many of them, Dear brothers and sisters, I am a man like you. If he was not a man like us, then he was lying. So it's very clear that um, this is also true, that the Master is a human being and the ultimate, the full human being, because he is what human beings are supposed to be. And in his presence and by fulfilling his commandments and his wishes, we can see for ourselves that and we can also experience for ourselves something of what he has experienced which has enabled him to become what he is. So that um, the reality of it also enters our lives. And this is, of course, the whole point here. Well, the latter part, I don't want to go into the second half of the discourse today. We'll do that next week. But again, um, he touches on some very important points including the necessity of becoming, of recognizing the living master, not clinging to past masters. This is a, an important part of not only this discourse, but of Jesus' teaching. And it is, of course, the, the sticking point on which the people to whom he addressed, most of them were unable to hear him because they were wedded to the past. This is true of almost all generations in almost all places that whenever the living master comes he has to contend with the dead weight of the past masters who in effect who in actual fact are his witnesses and in the second half Jesus invokes both John the Baptist who was the immediate past master and his own guru and Moses who was the ultimate religious authority for the people whom he was addressing and he points out that both of them testify to him. In other words, that all of the past masters, to the extent that they were real and in touch with God, bear witness to the necessity of the living master. One other point in connection with this, these claims, when Jesus says here, later on he says specifically, I and my Father are one. But this is one of the most stupendous claims through here. It is not always true Although it is usually true, it is not always true that masters will conceal themselves. Depending on the circumstance and on their will, they may reveal themselves fully in words as well as in deeds. Although they don't do it often, they do sometimes do it. And this is one instance of that, um, in which Jesus pulls no punches. And I have been present also many times with Master Kripal Singh, although he would not go quite as far as this in the... in um, 
identifying himself with the as the living master, he would go almost this far, and sometimes to audiences with, that were hostile to him. It did not bother him that people did not want to hear it. If he was in the will at the time, if it was in the will at the time for him to say it. So, uh, other, the famous Sufi master of Arabia, Mansur al-Halaj, was crucified, of course, about the 10th century AD, for giving out, I am, well, the word he used was haq. I am haq, the truth. But haq means God in Arabic. It's, it's uh, actually higher, refers to a higher manifestation of God, even than Allah. And for Mansur to say this was the ultimate blasphemy. <coughs> so he was crucified on account of it, and he was telling the simple truth. Malana Rumi made a a very marvelous hymn in which he stated that um, it was more humble to say, I am God, than I am doing the will of God, because the I that is speaking is, is uh, only possible to come forth when the ego is completely submerged. That is, of course, assuming that there is some substance behind it and the person has not just gone off the deep end. But we can assume in this case that uh, that he did not, since the masters have, have come after him, have recognized the truth of his statement. And so it goes. The Master Kripal Singh tells the story of Hazrat Baziad Bustanvi in the way of the saints, who, when he came down from Samadhi, said, I am God, same words that Mansur used. And his disciples became very upset. And after it happened two or three times, they started attacking him. Interesting, it's hard to believe, except for the fact that we know that disciples have often betrayed their master. They started attacking him with uh, weapons because he would, they were shocked at what he said and considered that he had gone mad or had become a great blasphemer. And according to the account, which is originally written down by Molana Rumi again, which Master quotes, uh, every time one of the disciples aimed one of his weapons at the Master, he got his own leg or arm cut off, whatever he had aimed it at, and the Master was unhurt while he kept on repeating, I am God. So that is, of course, uh, what happens one way or another whenever a disciple attacks the Master. And this whole uh, section that we have read today on the necessity of recognizing the source of the living master, of understanding, grasping where what he says comes from and understanding in our hearts, not as a theological point, but because something in us responds to it. Um, that necessity of recognizing the master is precisely what lies behind the so-called unforgivable sin, the sin that will not be forgiven unless it's by the Master himself, but cannot be forgiven according to the law of karma, uh, which is that of, of slandering or criticizing the saints, those who are, have no personality of their own, but who are um, true mouthpieces of God. So all of this is included in this section that we have read today, and it's very important. We will continue next week with that.